Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Strategies for Achieving Mucosal Healing is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medical Minute One, Strategies for Achieving Mucosal Healing. This is the first in a two-part series called S1P Receptor Modulators in Ulcerative Colitis, an evidence-based patient-centered approach to optimizing care. I'm Ryan Ungaro, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. These are my disclosures. And this is our learning objective, identify and target objective measures of disease activity to achieve mucosal healing in patients with UC. So to start our session, let's talk a little bit about the burden of ulcerative colitis. As you're all likely very aware, there are a number of symptoms uh, that are classic in the clinical presentation of ulcerative colitis. Most patients will have diarrhea, rectal bleeding, cramping. Patients will also frequently complain of of urgency, having to rush to the bathroom, or to nesmus, having the sensation of incomplete evacuation, and also in more severe cases where the disease is perhaps more markedly inflamed or extensive, may have more marked abdominal pain or decreased appetite, fatigue, and other systemic symptoms. So these symptoms obviously can be quite burdensome on our patients. And when you survey patients about what is the impact of all the the symptoms of ulcerative colitis and the disease on their lives, you can see that there is a, a major impact Uh, that our patients uh, can have, uh, that that these disease can have on our patients. And you can see here a survey, internet survey, looking at the variety of different disease impacting disease. And you can see on the left here, when you look at different chronic diseases and you ask patients uh, how they feel their condition, uh, if it's controlling their lives, you can see that the actually ulcerative colitis patients on the top uh, are more likely to say that their disease controls their life compared to other chronic conditions like asthma and rheumatoid arthritis. And on the right, you can see specifically when you ask patients with UC the psychological impact that many patients, the vast, vast majority, worry about the long-term effects of their disease, See, say that this disease makes their life more stressful, and they have feelings of being embarrassed uh, or even depressed. So major impact this disease can have on our patients' lives. And in addition, uh, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, the uh, other inflammatory bowel disease uh, that is that is on the spectrum of disease with ulcerative colitis, patients, uh, and this is from a study from, from the Nor- Norwegian population-based cohorts, you can see that patients with ulcerative colitis are up to two times as likely uh, to not be able to work uh, due to their disease and actually have disability. So this is uh, something that has a major impact. The symptoms have a major impact. People feel that it can tr- control their life. They can have uh, lots of worry and depression due to this, and that it can lead to actually needing uh, disability and inability to, to work and lead the life that they want to live. So with that, let's hear uh, from our patient uh, who's going to discuss his experience with UC before it was controlled. When my ulcerative colitis was not well controlled, my quality of life suffered pretty greatly. I had to be cognizant of you know, if I was out shopping or doing something with family and friends, I always had to be aware of the bathroom situation. Um, I had to be mindful of what I was eating or drinking to make sure that my symptoms uh, didn't worsen. It does put you into a bit of depression as well. Um, You know, you want to be like everyone else, but unfortunately you are now tagged with this disease that, um, you know, really does affect your quality of life. 
Um, and so it, it definitely takes a pretty significant toll on your emotional um, and mental health. While most people who are 24, 25 years old are going out, hanging out with friends at bars and restaurants and enjoying life, you know, when, when your disease is not well controlled, you know, having a social life is pretty difficult because you have to really make your plans around your symptoms at the time. And, you know, you have to really think about where you are uh, going, what's on the menu, are there options that you can eat, things that you can drink that won't, you know, um, make your your gut unhappy. And um, so there's a lot more planning that goes into having a social life with friends. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, time you're spent alone by yourself um, because because of your disease progression, you're not allowed, you know, you're not able to just enjoy life uh, to the fullest like most people who don't have ulcerative colitis. When my disease state was not controlled, my physical health wasn't great. Obviously, I'm you know, experiencing symptoms from the disease, which, uh, you know, can be painful and troublesome on its own. Um, but just the inability to do normal day-to-day activities because of the disease, you know, I'm not able to work out. I'm not able to take care of myself as much because I'm not sure what, you know, I may do that could trigger a flare. And so I have to be really careful about, you know, just everyday life and activities. And and I have, you know, a lot of it was spent, you know, because of the disease was spent in bed uh, doing nothing. And obviously my physical health uh, was put on a back burner at that point. I wasn't able to take care of myself like I had been before I was diagnosed. We'd like to thank our patient for sharing their experience with us. I thought that was very informative. And so to, to continue on with our with our, um, our our session here, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the health-related and quality of life issues we see with our patients uh, with ulcerative colitis. And I think a, a key thing that needs to be uh, discussed and that we need to think about when we're treating patients with ulcerative colitis is that the goals of treatment um, between the patient and the physician are sometimes not well aligned. And we really need to make sure our goals are aligned in order to fully assess the burden and impact of this disease on our our patients. And what you can see here, this slide is giving an idea of how in a patient's mind uh, that in a patient's goals, they may be different than for a physician. You know, as a physician, we're oftentimes thinking about remission. What does the scope look like? What does their histology look like? We're thinking about the key objective metrics say that are often looked at in our clinical trials as our outcomes of our, that our treatment is successful. And patients do see this as important, but they also maybe uh, oftentimes are thinking as important or more important are things like their ability to work, their ability to just go out and work and enjoy their lives, impact of some symptoms that sometimes we are not uh, necessarily adequately addressing like fatigue or urgency. And so trying to align these things uh, well, how the disease is impacting a patient's quality of life with the objective metrics that we're thinking of as gastroenterologists can lead to better outcomes to uh, align our treatment plan and align our goals together with patients uh, can improve outcomes. And this, to get it at the, the idea that was just uh, highlighted in that last slide, was a survey where they spoke to patients on the left and physicians on the right and surveyed them and asked, what are your top priorities for the management of your UC? And interestingly, you know, the number one ranked actually did align the ability to perform daily activities. But after that, the goals really are very disparate between patients and physicians, where physicians, uh, you know, may be putting a higher emphasis on avoiding hospitalizations and surgeries, whereas patients are actually even more concerned about avoiding cancer, um, avoiding having to, uh, you know, having to, to worry about urgency and where the bathroom is. 
and also concerns about side effects medications. So these are things to keep in mind that our goals as physicians and the goals of patients may not be uh, directly aligned. And again, just a hint that hit at this idea of the burden of disease uh, on our patients. This is another survey where you had 200 patients and asking them what patients are they suffering from at that moment in time or have they ever uh, suffered from. And in, in the red here, you can see patients, the vast majority said that they were suffering from diarrhea at some point uh, or bowel urgency, which makes sense. And uh, many of these patients are saying that they were still suffering from these symptoms, even though uh, you know it had been ongoing before, that, they, that there's something that's lingering that is not being fully addressed. And so the symptoms burden is something that um, for many patients uh, is very important and is something that we need to make sure we're focusing on. Uh, in our in our daily practice, and here you know something to keep in mind when we're talking about some of the treatment goals for for patients and and, and physicians. You know, one of the things that physicians were really concerned about was avoiding surgery, and this is obviously an important objective endpoint. You know, this is a, a, a nice meta analysis that looked at rates of surgery over time. So in the pre-biologic era before 2000, on the top, and in the post-biologic era. Uh, or in the, the current biologic and targeted therapy era after 2000. And you can see that our rates of surgery have declined over time. So one-year risk of surgery going from about 5% to 3%, and a 10-year risk of surgery uh, going from about 15 down to 10%. So the rates of surgery have improved for ulcerative colitis patients, but they are still high. So we still have a, a lot to do in terms of adequately addressing our patients' symptoms, addressing our patients' concerns about how the disease is affecting their, their lives, and also improving the overall natural history of the disease and helping our patients avoid uh, outcomes like surgery. So next, I'd like to just discuss the idea of controlling symptoms versus controlling disease uh, activity. And I think the first thing to, to highlight here is that our, our patients, um, when they come and talk to, talk to us about their symptoms, we need to be cognizant that the symptoms and the objective metrics of inflammation may not always be lining up. It used to be that the treatment of, of IBD uh, was focused on how patient uh, symptoms were uh, only. And if a patient was feeling well, you'd say, okay, great, uh, come back if you're not feeling well, um, and, and you go on your merry way, and we'll see you if you have a flare in your symptoms. But what we realize over time and more and more research is highlighting for us is that the symptoms do not always uh, correlate one-to-one -one with what is objectively happening on the, in, in the patient's colon and the objective metrics of inflammation. And this is one of many studies uh, that, that got at this point. Uh, this is a post-hoc analysis of the ULTRA studies, so adalimumab in ulcerative colitis. And they looked at the association of patients' PROs, so the patient-reported outcomes, which are uh, frequency of stool and bleeding, rectal bleeding, and to see if you look at patients by their endoscopic score, so Mayo score of zero or ES zero on the slide on the on the on the x-axis in the graph, um, up to a Mayo score of three, which is more severe disease, um, and zero being remission, there's a discordance between what you're seeing on the scope and what the patient is reporting. And if you look on the right here, uh, Mayo score of two and three, uh, these are moderate to severely active patients, so having erosions, ulcers, et cetera. You can see um, a, the blue bars are a rectal, score ble uh, a rectal bleeding score of zero, so the patient reporting no bleeding, that you know up to one in three patients uh, may not be reporting bleeding at all, and yet they have this active disease. So this is just to highlight that we need to be thinking about you know, while the patient symptoms are obviously one of the major important goals for us uh, to, to improve, we also need to realize that the symptoms are not correlating one-to-one -one with the objective markers of, of inflammation. 
And so let's talk a little bit more about this concept of, of symptom control versus uh, these objective metrics of endoscopic healing. So as I mentioned, the treatment target in IBD, you know, and for many years was uh, symptom control. And that's at the top of this pyramid here uh, where you see PRO, so patient reported outcomes. And that if a patient's feeling better, then you've met your target and move on. And what we've realized is that we want to get actually deeper levels of remission to improve outcomes for our patients. So while we want their symptoms to resolve, we also want to be hitting more strict uh, objective metrics, and this is what this slide is, this pyramid is showing us, that the next level of depth of remission would be endoscopic healing. So the patient is feeling better at the top, but then also we want to go a little bit deeper and say that objectively their colon is also healing as well. And you can see here on the right a normal appearing colon, so you want that colon to be uh, you know as normal appearing as possible. And then it, there's actually now even a push um, and discussion about going even deeper than uh, how the endoscopy looks and looking at histologic healing and even maybe eventually aspirationally molecular healing. So even if you look at a biopsy, what molecular pathways are still uh, upregulated or not. So this is a, a slide to give you the concept of that our, our goals for our, our, our treatment target have changed over time and that we're looking at deeper and deeper levels of remission. And this is just to remind you when we're talking about endoscopic remission, that's that, that deeper level of remission, we're talking about looking uh, at the colon on colonoscopy and doing a endoscopic score. And typically this would be a Mayo endoscopic score is what's most commonly used. And just to refresh your memory, you can see here uh, in the upper left corner is a Mayo score of zero normal, all the way up to severe disease in the bottom right corner, which is a Mayo score of three, where you have alteration and spontaneous bleeding. And so incorporating these endoscopic scores into our uh, into our routine practice when we're doing colonoscopies uh, and using this as a measure of, of meeting our, our treatment targets uh, is critical in the care of ulcerative colitis patients. So what are some of the data that show us that endoscopic healing leads to better outcomes? Well, this is one of many studies, one of the earlier studies, which was a post hoc analysis of the ACT-1 uh, trials, which is uh, the, the phase three studies of infliximab uh, for moderate to severe UC. And what they did was look at early time points, what the patient's colonoscopy looked like based on a Mayo endoscopic score of zero to three. And what was the, then the patient's subsequent risk of having a colectomy over time? And you can see patients with a zero or one in the blue and red bars at the top compared to patients with a score of two or three, so moderately to severely active disease, which are represented in the green and yellow bars, the patients who are healed uh, with an endoscopic score of zero to one did much better than those with, who continue to have active disease with a significantly decreased risk of subsequent colectomy. So meeting the objective outcome of endoscopic healing with improved Mayo score is associated with lower risk of later colectomy. And this has also been uh, replicated and built upon in a meta-analysis, uh, looking at all studies that are able to provide this kind of data, looking at an early endoscopic endpoint uh, and later outcomes of clinical remission and colectomy over the longer term, one plus years. And this is 13 studies over 2,000 patients. And if you're meeting an endoscopic target of a Mayo score of zero or one uh, early on in ulcerative colitis, those patients are four times more likely to be in clinical remission uh, after a year or more, and four times more likely to still have their colon. So, so meeting those, those strict endpoints of endoscopic remission uh, does 
lead to uh, improvement in our hard clinical outcomes of remission, clinical remission, and, and even more importantly, or as importantly, uh, not needing surgery. And I mentioned before that our, our, our goals for treatment, our targets have been going deeper and deeper levels of remission over time. And so histology uh, is something that uh, has been proposed as a potential additional target. So your scope looks normal, but if you still have inflammation on your biopsy, how do those patients do? So you feel fine, your scope looks okay, you have a male square of zero one, but there's still inflammation on the biopsy and there's histological inflammation. Uh, how do those patients fare compared to those without histologic informa- uh, inflammation? And this is a data from a systematic review um, and analysis of, of multiple studies. And what they found was that if you have a endoscopic score of zero, but you still had um, histologic activity, your rate of clinical relapse was higher than if you had histologic remission as well. And that's the bottom row here. So a rate of 13% versus 5% uh, at per year uh, risk of, of having a flare was translated to a, about a 63% reduced risk of a flare. So patients who were in histologic remission um, and having this more rigorous treatment endpoint did have a substantially lower risk of clinical relapse in this, in this meta-analysis. So these data have informed our updated STRIDE 2 guidelines, and this is a expert consensus recommendation about what our treatment targets should be uh, for ulcerative colitis. Uh, this was done by the International Organization for the Study of IBD, so an international group of IBD experts. And what they what they proposed was thinking about these treatment targets in an intermediate target, an intermediate target, and a long-term target. So what are the immediate targets for ulcerative colitis? This is first clinical response. So you start a patient on a therapy, and are they having a decrease in their symptoms? And in this case, you know, at least a 50% decrease in their rectal bleeding score or the stool frequency score, um, and that you're seeing some clinical improvement uh, in the, what the patient is experiencing, what they're reporting. This is in the short term, in anywhere from the two to eight week range. Intermediate targets, you know, more in that in that uh, three month to, to one year range, um, these are where we're looking to achieve clinical remission, not just that they're feeling better, but that they're now actually normalizing their stool count, their stool frequency, normalizing uh, their, their the presence of blood, so no blood in the, in the stool, um, and also that their objective metrics of inflammation, so whether it is a blood test like CRP or a stool test like fecal calprotectin, that these are also normalizing as well. So this intermediate target now um, uh, is combining clinical remission plus normalization of uh, of your, your biomarkers of inflammation, whether it's CRP or fecal calprotectin. And then the long-term target, which we're, we're talking in the 12-month range, um, six to 12-month range, we're adding on to that. Not only are you in clinical remission, but you also have endoscopic healing that your, your mucosa is healed as well. And this is defined as a Mayo endoscopic score of zero so that the colon uh, looks looks normal, no erosions, no ulcerations, no erythema. And then also uh, going along with things we said before about patient's goals, absence of disability and normalizing quality of life. So we think if we meet these endpoints of clinical remission, endoscopic remission, uh, we also can improve uh, patient's quality of life and the, the outcomes that are important to them as well. And this is another, uh, you know, figure showing what I just reviewed in a more visual sense, where you have these immediate targets of a symptomatic response, intermediate where you want their symptoms to be in remission, and normalization of their non non um, non a, a non invasive uh, markers of inflammation like CRP and fecal calpro, and then the longer term uh, goal of endoscopic healing. 
And right now, based on the current data, the uh, IYBD stride two guidelines uh, say to consider, but is not yet a formal target histologic healing. And I think this is because we're still waiting for more perspective data to say that treating to histology uh, is definitely going to be better than uh, treating to endoscopic healing. And also we do have, a, like, we, you know, we have lots of advances in our therapies, uh, but we do have a limited armamentarium for our ulcerative colitis patients. So if we are treating to histologic healing, are we going to burn through too many medications too quickly? So histologic healing is it's right now a, I would say almost an icing on the cake target. And really the target is clinical remission plus a endoscopic remission that on a colonoscopy, the patient's colon looks healed. So how do we, um, you know, incorporate the, uh, our assessments of patients into, um, into, into practice in, in terms of deciding how sick is our patient, what therapy do they need? So this is uh, the ACG, American College of Gastroenterology Ulcerative Colitis Activity Index. So this is uh, a posed index that you can use uh, in your daily practice to, to, to put a patient into a uh, disease activity uh, classification uh, based on how sick they are at this moment in time. And I think that's a key thing to, to concept is that disease activity um, is the patient sitting in front of you how sick are they right at this at this moment, a cross-section at this moment in time? And that's different from disease severity, which I'll talk about in a second. So you can see here from remission to fulminant, um, there's, I won't read through this, this ad nauseum here, but basically there's a number of bowel movements, how, how urgent, how much urgency the patient's having, what their inflammatory markers are, and what their endoscopic score uh, is. The totality of these metrics can then help you put a patient into a category of, is this a moderate to severe patient, where I'm thinking they're, they're sicker, I need to think about a more uh, targeted advanced therapy, or is a milder patient where I can do maybe a more step-up gradual approach, or or the more extreme is a fulminant patient where they're very sick, 10 plus downloads a day, very elevated inflammatory markers, lots of ulcers on their colonoscopy where I need to maybe even hospitalize them and get them better more quickly. So this is one of many disease activity indices that you can refer to in clinical practice um, to give you a sense of where a patient is on their disease activity. And as I mentioned, though, we're now also moving to incorporate the idea of severity. And what's different about the, the idea of severity is that we want to take into account the totality of a patient's history of their ulcerative colitis and also what are the risk factors uh, for having a poor outcome. So these are based on the um, AJA care pathway, where uh, they're proposing to incorporate risk factors for colectomy and treatment decisions for patients. So high risk for colectomy are a number of risk factors listed here, extensive colitis, requiring steroids, having deep ulcers, having markedly elevated inflammatory markers, having a young age of disease onset or low serum albumin in comparison to patients who are low risk for colectomy, so more limited disease extent or mild endoscopic disease. So you have someone who may be feeling okay, maybe falling to more of the remission or mild bucket in that prior slide I was showing you. But if they have a lot of these risk factors for colectomy, uh, that's someone you need to be thinking about. Maybe I need to have a more uh, aggressive treatment strategy for this patient. And this was something that we proposed um, in, a, in a review recently in gastroenterology, how to try to incorporate these two ideas together, severity and activity. And so if you have a low severity patient who has mild disease activity, the risk of progression is likely low. But if you have a, a low severity patient, not many risk factors, but they're very sick at this moment in time, then we would say that person is probably more in the moderate risk and you need to think about um, a more aggressive therapy more quickly. And then someone who has a high severity, so someone who has a, a lot of risk factors for a poor outcome, 
regardless of how they're feeling at this moment in time, that's someone you you maybe think is more moderate to, to severely at risk for a poor outcome and you need to be more aggressive uh, with their therapy. So we're trying to marry these two concepts together of, of activity, how's the patient feeling right now with severity um, and their overall risk factors. So let's talk a little bit about management algorithms for, for ulcerative colitis. This is the classic step-up algorithm that you've probably seen in, in many talks where you go in a stepwise fashion um, where you start with the uh, a, a more milder treatment and, and work your way up to a more uh, you know targeted or uh, a therapy, and you know this is still somewhat applicable. I would argue for ulcerative colitis patients who are maybe at lower risk for disease progression um, or mo maybe moderate risk, and they're not that sick. Where you can start with the mesalamine and then reassess, see if they're if they're getting better. If they're not getting better, step up to that next level of, of therapy. Um, and typically, we want to be assessing, particularly, say, with mesalamines or if, they, if you're giving them a steroid, um, if they're not getting better within like two to four weeks, then you want to start thinking, I need to maybe move on uh, to the next therapy. And so you know, this is the classic step-up approach that many of us are also very used to, insurance companies um, asking us uh, you know, what patients have failed uh, before medication-wise. Uh, but because of this idea of incorporating severity and activity to target our treatment, this is now becoming um, a, not necessarily totally antiquated, but we're trying to, to, to identify patients who need to jump up to a higher level of more targeted therapy sooner uh, so we're not letting patients suffer with symptoms. And this is um, one conceptualization of how to approach treatment stratification and, and treatment selection for ulcerative colitis patients based on the idea of how at risk is a patient, based on how sick they are at this moment in time and the risk factors for complications. So a patient has more milder disease, no risk factors for, for complications, is you know, somewhat sick, but not, not someone you're thinking that you know, has a high inflammatory burden, potentially needing to be hospitalized. This is a patient where you can certainly start with a, a 5 ASA, uh, oral uh, plus or minus the topical, assess in two to four weeks, and then if they're they're starting to get they're continuing to get better, having a response, continue that therapy. More moderate patient who has more moderate symptoms, maybe one of some some risk factors for complications. If they're not that sick, I think it's not unreasonable to start with a mesalamine, but you want to rapidly move on, rapidly step up if they're not getting better um, in the short term, in that like two to four week, maybe getting at most eight weeks um, to, to, to assess how they're doing with their mesalamine. And if they are not, then you rapidly step up to another therapy. So if a patient is interested in, in a oral therapy, that would be ozanamide. Um, other therapy to consider in the more moderately severe patient would be vedolizumab or ustekinumab. And you could also consider thiopurine, although in general, um, you know, that is usually uh, not used as commonly uh, now as a monotherapy, particularly because it takes time to work. If the patient is more on the moderate to severe side, this is where we're thinking going straight to a, a, a TNF antagonist, such as uh, infliximab, adalimumab. Um, and if the patient is not uh, doing well on, a, on a, a, a TNF antagonist and has failed a TNF antagonist, this is where a JAK inhibitor uh, may play a, a good role. The data as a second-line therapy after TNF antagonist failure uh, for upadacitinib or to tofacitinib, those medications seem to work uh, quite well in the TNF failure patient. And actually, it's important to note that the FDA um, has actually relegate, uh, relegated these therapies, the JAK inhibitors, to second-line therapy only after uh, failing a TNF. Obviously, our more fulminant patients need to think about colectomy. Other things to take into account here are other comorbidities. So if a patient has psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, some of our therapies that work with colitis also work for these conditions. So we may be able to kill two birds with one stone if you use something, say, like a ustekinumab, um, if a patient has psoriasis and ulcerative colitis. Or if a patient has other systemic 
extraintestinal manifestations, things like uh, TNF uh, antagonists, um, or if they have, say, multiple sclerosis, something like Ozanamide, where it's already approved for that as well, may push you more to that, that drug or another. Uh, so this is the idea that you're you're looking at how how active and how severe is the patient's disease and matching which type of therapy you want to use based on that. And obviously, when we're talking with patients, everything is very individualized. I mentioned already that you're going to look at disease characteristics, uh, concomitant diseases, uh, other extratestinal manifestations. Um, you're going to think about the, the drugs route of administration. What does the patients want in terms of their lifestyle? What are their preferences? What's their 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 risk? Uh, tolerance in terms of safety of medications. And so really there's a lot of uh, discussions that go in, in personalizing which treatment for which patient. And a lot of it is a what we would call a shared decision-making process where you discuss the pros and cons of each of these medications with the patients. And this is just to give you an, a little bit more specifics of some ways in which this could work. You know, for example, a patient, as I mentioned before, uh, who had long-standing UC has failed infliximab and anti-TNF. This is someone where you could go then to potentially a JAK inhibitor, rupatacitinib or tofacitinib. If you have a patient who's newly diagnosed uh, with, with moderate to severe uh, ulcerative colitis and they have a personal history of, say, uh, a malignancy such as lymphoma, you may then go for uh, something that uh, a drug that has not been associated with a risk of lymphoma like anustakinumab or betalizumab. For someone who is, uh, say, has a very busy lifestyle, travels a lot for business, um, you may go for a more injectable medication like adalimumab or usikinumab or, or an oral medication uh, such as, as, as ozanamide. So there's a lot of different nuances that go into you know, the factors we're going to consider to selecting a specific medication uh, since we are right now don't have any specific biomarkers that can tell us which drug will work best for which patient. We go with these, you know, these, these shared decision-making uh, features and, and hints about what what um, if we can we can use a drug to help a second uh, condition that a patient has uh, as well as the ulcerative colitis. So to finish, we have a case: a 34 year old man with ulcerative colitis. He's uh, named a gentleman named John, diagnosed with moderate UC. He's tried misalamine now orally and topically for four weeks with no relief at all. He travels frequently and, and is interested in, in seeing if there's another oral therapy. You can see here that his vitals are okay, um, you know, not tachycardic. He's a little bit anemic. His albumin is in the normal range, but his CRP and ESR are mildly elevated as well as his calprotectin. Um, the rest of his exam uh, is, is normal with the exception of some mild left-sided tenderness. And you can see on his colonoscopy here, he has Mayo 2 disease. So you classify this person, I think, as, as moderate uh, moderate colitis. So what uh, therapy would you uh, choose at this point for this patient? One option would be to consume misalamine, what we mentioned before. He's already been on this for four plus weeks. So you want, at that point, you should already be seeing some benefits. So you want to move on at that point if it's not having any benefit after, after a month. What about switching to a JAK inhibitor, an oral therapy, which he suggested or mentioned that he's interested in? The issue with the JAK inhibitor is that you have to wait until the patient has already uh, not had a TNF antagonist work for them. So in this situation, since he has not been on a TNF, that is not the preferred option. And then the last option, which in this case would be, I think, the most reasonable one for this patient based on his goals of having oral therapy would then be switching to ozanamide, which has good efficacy in biologic naive patients and is an oral therapy, which this patient wants. So with that, I'd like to thank you for participating um, in this program. Be sure to click on the button below to receive your credit. And I also invite you to view Medical Minute 2, where my colleague, Dr. Jordan Axelrod, will be discussing putting it into practice, where do S1P receptor modulators fit? And thank you again for your time. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC. 
To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.